Hebrews chapter 13. This is the last chapter in Hebrews. I don't know about you, but I am not excited about it being the last chapter in Hebrews. Hebrews has been a wonderful, rich book, and we've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So um, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. This is God's Word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me now? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us words like this that help us learn how to live lives of gratitude towards you. That help us live in, in a manner that's pleasing to you, Lord. That's an expression of our affection for you because you've chosen us and loved us. So, Father, I pray that you would help us live. Help us live lives that are pleasing to you. Live lives of worship to you. Not to earn anything, Lord, but because you've bought us. You've paid for us. You've adopted us. And you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we used to live outside of a town called Vancouver in British Columbia in Canada. And when we did there, live there, we could see Mount Baker from our back porch of our house. Um, this actually was the view from our back porch of, of our house. And this, this Mount Baker just kind of loomed loomed in the distance. And everywhere you looked, everywhere in the town, you could see Mount Baker rising up in the distance. I think I have a few more pictures of Mount Baker. So we could see it. Well, you can't on these slides, but you can see it from the ocean. You can see it from the beach. You can see it from anywhere in the town, from the streets. You can just see this Mount Baker was like hovering over everything. It was, it dominated everything. It was huge. It was, it was grand. It was spectacular. It almost seemed surreal to be floating in the clouds. Floating in the distance, it was a mysterious, at times intimidating-looking mountain. It was snow-capped most of the year around, shrouded in gray and white hues. But its, its majesty was, was pretty from a distance. But it was only 30 miles away from our house as the, as the crow flies, although it seemed a lot closer if you look. Um, this is farmland down here about two minutes from our house. And this little gray outline you can see in the distance is, is Baker back there. It's, it was just, it's always... Around only 30 miles away, but we never went to it for like the first three or four years we were there. Finally, some relatives from Virginia went to visit us, and, and we started driving there, and there's this little two-lane road that you go on. And as you're driving there, it's, it's uh, covered with woods and trees, and you really can't see the mountain at all. And so you figure, where am I going? And there's tons of switchbacks, and you, and you feel like you must be lost, you must be on the wrong road. And then instead of exploring Mount Baker itself, we had a great idea we thought we'd do. We said, you know what, we'll, we'll go up right on this little ridge, a couple hundred yards that kind of runs beside Mount Baker. We'll do that. And, and I looked on the map and it says you have to have four-wheel drive to have access to that. And it's a one-lane road, no big deal. And so we started getting up the road and realized if someone else comes down the road, we have to back down 
to somewhere because there's not room for two cars. And so we're, we're driving around just trying to figure out where in the world's Mount Baker after about 20 minutes of driving this one lane gravel road, kind of tensely hoping we don't run into another vehicle. Finally, we come around the corner and then almost just out of nowhere, boom, out of the, out of the forest, out of the woods, explodes this just beautiful view of Mount Baker. And I think, there we go, that's, that's a picture from right the road, the ridge line right beside it, and there's these pretty flowers everywhere. It's purple and oranges and yellows, and this, it's just gorgeous view, and it's even prettier close up. And the, and the road, it, it didn't, didn't seem to make sense to us at first. I remember thinking, all right, are we on the right road? Are we on the wrong road? There's no turnarounds. Are we going to back all the way down? Backing 20, 30 minutes down a mountainside did not sound appealing to us, but it didn't make sense to us, didn't seem at first to make sense, thought we were on the wrong trail. And then, boom, it took you by surprise, and you saw the, the beauty, and you saw the beauty close up and the details. If, if you're reading through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews can at times seem like this big, intimidating book. I remember when we first began the book of Hebrews, people in our church were saying, I don't really like the book of Hebrews. I'm like, great, that's what we're doing. We're going to be going through the book of Hebrews. Remember one of our carry players saying, you know, um, I'm glad you're taking us through this book because it's God's word, but I'm not really excited about it. <laughs> that's good. That's great. I love that start. And um, it's this kind of big looming mountain at times. And then when you get on the way through the book of Hebrews, sometimes you cannot figure out where are we? Where is he going? Where is he heading? And this morning, our, our text is kind of like that a little bit. You, you, you start reading through Hebrews 12. If you remember, we've been reading through Hebrews 12 about... Jesus, and we have received an unshakable kingdom from him, an unshakable kingdom, and because we have an unshakable kingdom, let's worship God and live a life of gratitude. And then all of a sudden, it's like you go into the woods in this text. It's, you don't know what, what in the world. So he talks about living a life of gratitude because we have an unshakable kingdom. And then he goes, boom, 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 boom. We have six verses where it's really just lay out six different commands in here about how we're supposed to live. And it can be confusing at times. But I don't want us to have that experience. I want us to have that experience instead of seeing, you know what, no, it, it's like looking at Mount Baker close up. And there's, there's beauty. I think there's even a couple, is there another picture up there of Picture Lake and some other things there and one more? And I think, was there one more after that? Nope. Okay, excellent. Those are the... <laughs> um, sorry, it's like watching home movies with me or home slides. So... Um, <laughs> You, you can get the experience where you, if you gloss through the text too quickly, you're going you're to lose all the details and lose seeing that, no, this actually, it all hangs together. It makes sense. It goes together with this big picture we've been seeing, and it helps explain this text a little bit. So as we've been going through this book, we've been seeing these high peaks of who Jesus is and, and why Jesus is better. We've been seeing that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the law, better than Moses, better than the prophets. Jesus, as the creator of all, is sustaining all things, and so he can sustain you. We've been seeing that Jesus, by his sacrifice, brings us into the presence of God. He gives us God's grace. We can see that Jesus brings a better sacrifice. Why? Because he's a better high priest. And we saw last week in our text, chapter 12, if you go there, it's ended with an inspired reminder with the author. He says, therefore, the end of chapter 12, let us be grateful What's he talking about? Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know, we talked about last time we were in the book of Hebrews, how life is shaky at times. Life's unstable. Life's uncertain. But we have one certain thing. You know, some people like to say that 
the only certain thing in life is uncertainty. I'm like, no, that's actually not true. The only certain thing in life is God. The only certain thing in life is that God never changes. He's not uncertain. We have a great hope that our kingdom cannot be shaken. Even when you're tempted to think you've lost the faith, you've lost your way or illness or whatever it is might assault you, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so what it says in the end of Hebrews 12, 28, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence in all. If you're, if you're trying to figure out, what, how in the world is this text this morning, Hebrews 13, how does it make sense? Well, it makes sense only if you read Hebrews 12. And it says, oh, okay, this is, this is what it looks like to live a life of gratitude to God. This is what it looks like to live a life of grateful worship to God. He says, let's be grateful for receiving the kingdom that can't be shaken. And let's offer to God acceptable worship. So what he then is doing in these verses is he's not just giving us six commands to how to be a good Christian. Six commands how to be a better person. Six commands about how to earn favor before God. No, that's not what it is at all. This is six commands that are directly related to living a life of gratitude. This is how we offer to God worship in our lives. Our lives are to be a life of worship. This is how we do it. So the author is not telling us, here's some more rules that you have. So God saved you, now you're on your own. No, what he's saying is, because God saved you, because you have an unshakable kingdom, now we can worship Him with all of our lives. And here's some ways that you can worship God. We have an unshakable kingdom. No matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens, if there's wars or rumors of wars, no matter if North Korea is rattling its saber and saying that they're going to load nuclear missiles and launch them, there's B-1 bombers flying around South Korea and North Korea right now, no matter what happens out there, no matter whether the economy collapses or not, no matter what happens with our health, if our health gives way or we die, no matter what man does, no matter what people say about you, we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this great and beautiful truth is not because we've earned it any more than you can make Mount Baker. <laughs> you, you'd, be, you'd be absurd if somebody says, yeah, I made that. You look, you're looking at this mountain. That's a beautiful view, isn't it? What a gorgeous mountain. And it's, it's got the snow on top and it's just, it's just so pretty. Man, it's, just, it's all inspiring. And then your neighbor says, yeah, I made that. <laughs> you're like, you are nuts. Talk about delusional. In the same way, we didn't make the kingdom that we've received. We didn't make this great gift of God's grace, this all-inspiring kingdom that we've received, no more than we made Mount Baker. And so these, these commands are in that context. They, they, aren't, they aren't because we can make this grandeur, because we can make the wonderful truth of God's unshakable kingdom we received. No, it's in response to it. We're meant to respond to this beauty, respond to the grandeur or the fact of knowing that we have a great and beautiful truth. We have a, a kingdom that can't be shaken. And it can't be shaken by us, by our failures, by our sin, by our lack, by our instability, by our unbelief. When you're a loser, when you're, when, when you're at your worst, the kingdom that you receive from God cannot be shaken. And that's good news. And so these verses really are in response to that. 
We have a kingdom that can't be shaken. It's all ours because of Jesus and what He's done for us as our great high priest. He's made a once and for all sacrifice of His own life in our place. And He, he brings not judgment, but He brings us into God's presence, not for God to punish us, but He brings us into God's presence to receive mercy and grace. In our time of need, as we're going through the book of Hebrews, so now these verses are in response to that. After we've, we've rounded the bend, as you will, we're coming out. The author is saying, now that you grasp this great truth, now that you know that you have this eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken, it's meant to result in something. Just like when you see a beautiful view like that, when you drive up beside Mount Baker, when you're going up, when you see Picture Lake, and you're, you realize, oh my goodness. It creates a response. It's the natural overflow that's, 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 that's actually meant to be the same kind of response that we have to God. Like, I just, I just want to, I want to live for Him. I want to, I want to stay right here. I want to stay in His presence. I want to, I want to live, I just want to be here. I want to live for Him. I want to give everything to Him. I want to live a life of gratitude to God. And so the author in these verses in chapter 13, he's not talking about sheer duty. Really the main idea is that we're to live a life of grateful worship to God. And the results in living out our love for Him by loving others. So the main idea in these verses this morning, I think that God would have us see, it's really just simple. It's that gratitude to God. Talked about in 1228. Gratitude to God. Let's live a life of gratitude and worship and all. Gratitude to God is displayed. Gratitude to God is displayed in a life of love. And doesn't that just go along with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles as well? It's, this is really just an outflow of loving God by loving others. Loving God practically. And that's what these verses are about. Gratitude to God is displayed in living a life of love. And the first thing that we're going to see in verse 1, it says, Let brotherly love continue. What's the first point? What's he saying? He's saying, Gratitude to God is seen in your loving your siblings. <laughs> gratitude to God is seen in loving your siblings. I don't necessarily mean about your earthborn siblings. Are you supposed to do that too? Everybody knows you're supposed to love your earthly family. But what he's saying is, Let brotherly love continue. Gratitude to God is going to be seen in loving your siblings. Now, if, if you are a Christian, that means that you have a family. God has brought you into a family. He's adopted you. Not only has He become your father, but He's given you brothers and sisters. Sometimes those are, that's great. <laughs> Other times, you may not get along so well with your brothers and sisters. Family relationships can be one of the most difficult relationships we have in life. And what He's saying is let brotherly love continue. It's not a suggestion. It's a gracious command from the author. And, and from this context, it was clear that this was a mark of the church and that the author was writing to these people, to the, this people, these Hebrews in this church. And it was obviously an, a mark of them because he says, let it continue. They've been caring for one another. They've been loving each other when they were persecuted. They had their property taken, if you remember earlier from the book of Hebrews. But they were probably tempted to let up. You ever tempted to let up? Okay, I've... I've really, I've really given my all. I've loved my brothers. I've loved my sisters. I've, I've done a lot this week. I just want to break. And that's no big deal. Sometimes we need breaks. But we have this tendency to, the longer we take breaks, the longer they go, the longer they go, and we begin to neglect those things that we know we should be doing. And so he says, let brotherly love continue. They were tempted to let up, to lessen their pursuit of loving one another. And he says, brotherly love, this language, this context, really, it's, He's imploring them to love their fellow saints, their fellow members of God's household. He's telling them, 
Love your brothers and sisters. Love the siblings that you have. You've all been adopted. It's a reminder, too, of the fact that we've all been adopted. We have a family now. Maybe you come from a background where you don't have brothers and sisters. or You come from a broken family. Now as part of God's family, you've been adopted. You begin in a whole new family. But loving siblings in the church, loving people not like you who have been adopted in the same family, it isn't always easy, is it? We are all weird. You might not know that you're weird, but you are. And if you don't know how you're weird, I don't know, I could, I could help you with that maybe. I, and you could tell me how I'm weird. And that's, that's normal. We all have our, our oddities. We all have our quirks. But we're called to love people not like us. I remember when I was growing up, there was this TV show that's going to date me. Um, in this, I think it was the 70s when it started, called The Brady Bunch. And if you're under 30, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. It was these two, this, this man, this woman, they both had three kids, I think, each. And, and then they got married and they were this big kind of mingled family. And it was all about how the kids related to each other. And it was a little kind of sappy, syrupy, sweet. It was a little unrealistic. But some of the realism was when um, they didn't get along because they just didn't, they weren't, they didn't understand each other. They, they came from different backgrounds, different families. They had different ways of doing things. And so they clashed and so often the little... The show was about how to resolve these clashes that come up because they're adopted siblings. And uh, at times, we loving your family, it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna make you clash. You're different. You come from different backgrounds. That's a good thing. That's a God intended thing. Um, I would love to see many, many, many more backgrounds in the church here. Different cultures, different contexts, different socioeconomic backgrounds. I'd love to see um, different ethnicities of all kinds displaying the glory and the beauty of God. And, but when that happens, the reality is it's not always easy. And so he says, let brotherly love continue. Just like many adopted siblings in real life have to learn how to get along, they don't always like each other. We need to learn to love those who have been adopted by God. Even if you wouldn't have chosen them, they've been chosen too, like you've been chosen too. Loving, loving siblings in God's family, it's evangelistic too though. So it's not just inclusive, it's actually our, our, our inclusiveness, our, our loving each other, it's meant to be a light to the world to say, there's something different. There's something different about these people who call themselves disciples. What in the world is that? Disciple? A follower of Jesus? There's something different about these people who claim to be followers of Jesus. They have this, they actually love each other. And when they get irritated with each other, they resolve their conflict. And they actually forgive, they sin against they do bad stuff to each other. They're, they wrong each other, but they forgive each other. And that, that shows that something's different. Something's changed. Something is abnormal. That can only happen through the power of God. And one of the ways as well, not only is it evangelistic, He help, uses us loving each other to help us not be selfish. How about you, but I'm, I'm tempted to be selfish. Not just sometimes, all the time. Uh, I'm tempted to think only about myself, my way of doing things, my comforts, my time loving one another loving letting brotherly love continue is one of the ways god helps us grow as disciples he also uses it to help us not be selfish and then help us to minister to others you can be a minister of god's grace you say i don't know what my part is in this church i don't know how to i don't know how to step out i don't know how i can use my gifts start loving your brothers and sisters here start loving your siblings that's how you can use your gifts. That's how you can be a minister of grace to other people around you. 
Now, as your pastor, I want to say thank you. I want to say that um, not only has, has the church as a whole uh, benefited from you demonstrating this, loving out one another. Um, I, I've personally, practically, we're in the middle of kind of buying this house that needs to be finished building. And so it's just been, I've been humbled by how much love and affection has been poured out to me and my family through you. And I'm, and I'm grateful. And I know the effect it's had on, on me it's that it makes me want to love God more. It's humbling. It makes me want to live for Him. It makes me remember, you know what? God's changed these people and He's at work. That gives me faith that God's changed me and He's at work in me and I can, I can love others too. It's an evidence that God's at work in, in your lives, not in minor ways. It's not, it's not minor that you would love each other. But that, that's a sign of the fact that you've been transformed. You've been changed. You've been changed from being selfish people, self-centered, self-focused people. Because of your adoption, you've been changed. And I can think of countless examples all over the place from Chris and Meredith Johnson. They give their time, their talent, their energy. They serve people doing practical things, visiting when they're sick, making sloppy joes, cutting down other people's trees. <laughs> I saw a picture, I think it was last week, of this massive tree. I'm like, Whoa! That looked like a lot of work. Many people in the church served quickly, provided meals for the reception after Joanna Randolph's funeral. Many people who help each other move. I think the bells moved a couple days ago and had people come out and help them. And when Jim Hubert, there was a couple guys who went and helped move some furniture around. They came home from the hospital. And so many examples in so many small ways that you're already doing this. Well, let me encourage you. That, that pleases the Lord. But let me also encourage you, let brotherly love continue. Let it continue. Then the author moves on to another way that gratitude to God is displayed in the life of love. And he says, gratitude to God is, is seen in loving strangers. He says, do not neglect, look down at verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hospitality in the first century, it was, it was expected. It was expected in the culture to show some measure of hospitality to your friends and family, and then at least to be polite to strangers. It was already assumed they'd be shown hospitality to each other. Now the question is, is that, a, is that an assumption we can take for granted here? Is it, isn't it assumed that we're already showing hospitality to one another? He says, showing hospitality to strangers, it's, it's possible that God's at work in a way you don't anticipate when you do that. God is sending strangers your way. They, they may actually be angels unawares or they may just be God sent. Showing hospitality to strangers in that context in the early church, it was dangerous. They were people who were thieves, who were trying to take advantage of people. They could be reported on and accused of causing problems. If you had invited a stranger into your home and they, they realized that you're a Christian, Christians were persecuted, so they report you to the government. There was, it had some risks for them. These people had, who the author is writing to, they'd had their homes taken from them. They'd had their possessions confiscated. It would have meant sacrifice. Can you imagine? You've just had your home taken from you. You've had possessions comp, uh, confiscated. And now you're reading through what does the life of worship look like? It looks like showing hospitality to strangers. You think, I can't, I can't do that. I don't have anything. Well, with whatever God's given, we're to show hospitality. It doesn't mean that we, we put on a, an 18-course banquet for someone. It, it, it means that we invite them into our homes. We have fellowship with them. We show them the love of God practically. And not only do that with people in the church, we're called to do that with strangers too. 
And, and it says not neglecting. It, it implies it's a discipline that's easy to neglect. That's the reverse of that. It's, it's easy to neglect showing hospitality to strangers. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many people have shown hospitality to strangers in the last month. It's, that's, it's one of those things I think instantly we can all realize that, wait a minute, am I doing this? How am I worshiping God? Am I worshiping God? Am I showing my gratitude to Him? Is it displayed not only showing brotherly love and hospitality to the church? That's the, that's just the step. That's the first step. But am I thinking about Showing hospitality to strangers. For our culture in this modern age, it's easy for us to justify not showing hospitality. We're too busy. My wife has hang-ups about the house being clean enough. Um, we don't have money for a big meal. Whatever it might be. I encourage you, it's, it's not about those things. It's about inviting people into your home. You might have a messy home. Okay, so does the person you're inviting. They just pretend they don't. You don't have to pretend you have, don't have a messy home either. And, you know, you might not be a great cook. That's okay. Have them over for toast. <laughs> Probably made you think of Nacho Libre there for a minute. But um, <laughs> have, have, just have somebody over for something simple. Buy some store-bought cookies. Buy, open up some, some Doritos. Have some hospitality. But let me encourage you, it's not a nice optional thing. This is actually a command. It's something we're meant to be pursuing, and we know from Romans that it's a command to show hospitality, to practice hospitality, have it regularly, a discipline, that you practice a regular discipline in the church. Well, this is, this is addressing not just in the church, but outside of the church, strangers. Wow, could you imagine if we all, if I started showing hospitality, if we all show, started showing hospitality to strangers, the effect that that would have on the world around us, they would see that these are grateful people who truly worship God. They're different. God's at work in them. Showing hospitality to strangers, it can be difficult though. And there's not one explicit way that we can do this. Don't, don't think immediately, like, I have to have homeless people into my home. No, if you have kids and other things, they'd be risked, they'd be wise. I'm not saying that, but, but, but maybe. But in the context of this letter, it's meant to provide a place to stay or food or people who are in need. It may mean for you providing a place to somebody who's visiting for out of town, a friend of a friend. It may mean having neighbors over you don't know for a meal. It may mean making meals, serving your neighbors or somebody you don't know well when they're in need. It could look like those things. It could look like practical things. It could look like when you hear somebody in your neighborhood is in the hospital going to visit them. They may not know you. It might be awkward. It may be weird. It may smell weird when you go in there. That's okay. God will, God will give you grace. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. It could look like serving in a homeless ministry. Maybe it looks like next time somebody asks, uh, a homeless person asks you something to eat, you go and get them something. Even if you think they might be scamming you. It's, it's, that's okay. God, God's going to repay you. You can trust God with that. And as I was studying, I was so convicted by practicing hospitality to strangers. And I was thinking about my own life. I'm like, oh my goodness, we've gotten out of the habit. We've, we've neglected this. This is something I've personally neglected. I think this is an area we can, we can easily neglect. It's easy to do. Your life gets busy. Your life gets full. You have lots of things on your schedule. But you see, God intends to use this for our good, for our enjoyment, for our growth in Him. We can grow as disciples of Jesus. We can, we can go as disciples of Jesus. We can 
be ministers of His grace as we do these things. We can live a life of worship. And isn't that what it's all about? What He's saying is, we have an unshakable kingdom. Let's live a life of gratitude. And it looks like worshiping God by showing hospitality, loving one another. And the third thing we're going to see is it's gratitude to God is seen in loving the imprisoned and mistreated. Look down in your Bibles or on the screen. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. What? I've not really thought lately about being in prison. We're meant to. We're meant to think about what would it be like to be in prison. I need to remember those. My brothers and sisters primarily in this context. He's talking about your fellow brothers and sisters. But it's not limited to that. There's application outside of the church as well. Remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them. If you were in prison, what, what would you be feeling? What would you be thinking? How would you be hurting? What would your needs be? What would bless you? What would benefit you? What would minister to you? Remember those in prison as though in prison with them. And he says, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body, we're we're to be so affected by the fact that God has released us from prison. That God has set us free from our enslavement to sin. So aware, what he's talking about here, so aware that God's released us from our self-made prison of sin that we remember those who are actually in prison as though we were in prison with them. Well, this is a radical life we're being called to, isn't it? I, I hope you're not comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with this. I was deeply convicted that we need to be going and, and ministering to strangers. We need to be going and ministering to those in prison, those who are mistreated. Because God has freed us from our self-made prison. He's released us. He's, he's set us who were captives free. We're not enslaved. We're not in bondage to sin anymore. Because of that, we can live a life of gratitude and worship to Him. It can be difficult. In the U.S. today, it's, it's, it's more rare to be imprisoned and mistreated for your faith, at least for the time being. But a time could come when, when that might change. You might be fired or put in jail for living the way the Bible calls us to. One day we could face some bad consequences for living as disciples of Jesus. In the context, this is the primary, the first application is talking about remembering those who are in the body with you who are in prison. So maybe we can ask ourselves, how can we remember those who are imprisoned for their faith in other countries? What could that look like? We who are in this, this very blessed, very prosperous First World Nation, what could it look like to remember people who are imprisoned for their faith in other countries? And I read a couple accounts this past week of, of people being persecuted for their faith in, in other countries. One man dying as he was beaten and electrocuted. Another, another account as well. And How can we love them and treat them as if we want to be treated if we were in prison too? How can we come to the aid of those maybe in our country and other countries who've been mistreated? I don't want you to feel like it has to look a certain way, but maybe it could look like supporting a pastor in a church in Asia or, or people who are sharing the gospel there. People who are persecuted with your, with, your, with your prayers, with your money, with your going on short-term missions trips. As Christians, that we have, a, we have an obligation to stand up for justice, to stand up for those who can't protect themselves, and to care for those who are mistreated. And that's what he's, he's talking about. If your life has been transformed, here's what a life of worship to God is going to look like. It's going to be all-encompassing. So maybe this morning we need to ask ourselves, look, how can I worship you? Not to earn favor, 
because I can't. I can't make Mount Baker. I can't make this kingdom you've given me. But God, I want to worship you. How can I practically respond this morning? I think God wants us all to respond and put these commands into action. Not to make yourself feel better so you can look better than those around you or build up your own reputation or to earn any merit before God. That's impossible to do. But let's be motivated to love others. Love brothers and sisters. Love those in prison. Love those who are mistreated because we've been loved with this great, astounding love that we could never do. Jesus came to us in our squalor and our blindness when we were hardened against Him. And any of the motive for loving other people, it's because God's loved us and we want to worship Him. Well, then the author gives us a fourth way, another way that the gratitude to God is displayed in the life of love to God. And he says that gratitude to God is seen in loving marriage. So at first you're reading through these things. What in the world? How are these things related? We've got loving your brothers. We have loving those in prison, loving those who are mistreated, um, keeping, loving marriage, letting marriage be held in honor. How does this all relate? Well, these are all ways that we can live a life of gratitude to God. And gratitude to God is seen in loving marriage. You look in verse 4. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all. So the desire, God's plan, God's desire is that marriage not just be honored by some. That his design for marriage, that the biblical definition of marriage, not just be honored by some, but it be held in honor among all. Why? Because it's for our good and for the good of the people he's created, even people who aren't believers. It's for the good of unbelievers that marriage be held in honor as well. And, but he says, and let it be held in honor among all, not just people who are married, not just singles. Let it be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. If you've ever read the book um, The Hobbit or seen the movie The Hobbit, it was out last year, I haven't seen it yet, I heard it was really long. But if you've ever read the book, enjoyed the book, it's this, this tale of one little piece of this, this character named Smeagol, and Smeagol encounters this ring that has this great power, it binds all these other rings, and it's all this other long story. He finds this ring, and it, it becomes everything to him. It becomes very dear to him. And do you remember what he calls it? My precious. It's kind of creepy, but he calls it my precious. And uh, he, he so esteems this ring. He so holds it in honor. He calls it his precious. And ironically, this is not... Oh, we need creepiness here, but the word where he says let marriage be held in honor, it's actually let marriage be held in precious, as precious. Let it be dear. Let it be precious to us. Let it be so precious that it becomes, it becomes something that we hold up as, as precious, as valuable to us. That we're willing to defend it. We're willing to, to live to make sure that we're holding God's good plan for humanity up as precious and in other places in the New Testament, that same word, it's the exact same word here for, for precious or held in honor, because I think the translators were like, well, how, what, let Mary be, marriage be precious. Well, what does that mean? So we're trying to put some English words around that. Let it, let it be held in honor. Well, the other times we have the same word, it's seen in, in talking about the precious blood of Christ. It's the same, same word. It's talking about the, the precious gift that we have of God's grace. It's, it's to be precious to us. In the same way. It's, it's, we're to hold marriage in honor in such a way that we should keep to a view, to hold on to a mindset that regards marriage and the marriage bed as precious. That, that holds marriage in honor among all, among everyone. It's not just, okay, hold marriage in honor 
among a part of you, or if you're married and you have a good marriage, hold that in honor. If you have a bad marriage, don't do that. If you're, if you're single, don't hold marriage in honor because it's a really bad thing. No, you can, you can, no matter what, you can hold marriage in honor. One of the ways we hold marriage in honor and hold it precious is by pointing others to the goodness of marriage as, as biblically defined, saying, no, I understand what our society says. I understand what the culture around says. I understand what the law says. Who cares what that says? Here's, here's, God has a good design and a good intent. And it's meant for your good and for the good of humanity and for our good. And it's meant to demonstrate something bigger. Marriage is not about just two people liking each other and getting together, shacking up and having sex. This is, it's about more than that. It's about demonstrating, reflecting God's love through Jesus Christ for His bride, the church. That's why we're to hold marriage in honor. Because marriage is not about, Ephesians 5 tells us this, it's not just about a man and a woman getting together. This is about this is about a picture of Christ and His bride. Let's hold that definition and how God displayed the, the beauty of men and women, different roles, but equal, coming together. That's what equality in marriage is. It's, it's a man and woman, very different, coming together, and yet God blending them and binding them together in such a way that they display His glory and show the fact that that He's created men and women in His image. And, and it's meant to be held precious. We don't, we don't want to refine marriage according to the culture's definition. It's not a cultural institution. It isn't defined by society. This is something that's ordained by God from the very beginning. And we should hold it in honor. Redefinition of marriage according to the Bible, it, it dishonors marriage. We stand for honoring biblical marriage. Let's, let's be winsome. Let's not be jerks. Let's be winsome and loving, not argumentative, not harsh. Let's not be judgmental or condemning, not attacking people. But it is a good time to be able to point people to the goodness of this God-designed institution, and it's meant for our good. Another way you can hold marriage in honor is, is not to be sexually immoral if you're not married. And that's what he's saying here. He says you can hold the marriage bed in honor don't be sexually immoral. Don't be adulterous. If you're married, don't be adulterous. If you're not married, don't be sexually immoral. What is sexually immoral immorality? The word here, it's, it's, it's wide panning. It doesn't, just mean, it doesn't just mean intercourse. This is any form of sexual knowing outside of marriage is sexual immorality. That's what that word means. So if you're, if you're not married and you're engaging in any kind of sexual knowing of the opposite sex, and that's sexual immorality. That's not, that's not my definition. That's the, that's the Bible's definition. If you're married and you are fooling around with somebody else who's not your spouse, that's adultery. It's not my definition. It's the Bible's definition. You're not holding the marriage bed in honor. You're not keeping it undefiled. If you're married, you can't have sex with other people. If you're not married... God does not intend for us to have sex outside of marriage. This is, this is not a prohibition because God's some prude and doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want us to enjoy what this gift is. No, this is because God actually wants us to enjoy the marriage bed in the context of marriage because it's actually better and it's good for us. And there's far more enjoyment in the context of marriage and because of what it speaks of. It speaks of the joining of two and two becoming one. And that's how we can hold it in honor is to say No. I'm not going to bow to the culture when it says that it's fine to, to sleep with my girlfriend or boyfriend and it's fine to live together. I'm going to say, no, I'm going to hold God in honor. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. 
Don't defile a marriage bed with someone other than your spouse. Don't defile the sacredness of marriage and the marriage bed before you're married by fornicating. If you're a man and a wife, it means that you're maritally faithful to one another. If you're unmarried, abstain from marital relations. You can just call sexual relations marital relations. Just, that's, what, that's, what, that's what he's saying here. Until you're married, so that you're different from society. And what a difference that makes. If, if you're going to live radically as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's going to be radical. It's going to look different. You're going to stand out. You might offend people. You say, no, I, I don't believe in that. I know, I, I know you do, but um, let me point you to why God's good and how God's good here. The author of Hebrews, he was calling the original hearers to be countercultural. The Greco-Roman world is rampant with open sexuality. Sound familiar? Prostitution was accepted. Taking lovers was okay. Fornicating and sex outside of marriage was common. It's similar in our world today. I remember growing up in the 70s and 80s. I don't know what happened. I don't know what my parents were thinking. And I hope she's not listening. My mom's listening to this message this morning. But I remember them letting us watch these shows like uh, Love Boats, you know. Set your mind uh, on a, such a course for adventure, your mind on a new romance. I mean, it was all about coming together for a new fornication that week. Um, it was... As a society, we're in a place where sexual relations outside of marriage is the norm, where adultery is common in many marriages, and we aren't to be like that, though. He's saying, we've been bought with a price. What does living gratefully in worship to God look like? It looks like being radically different. Because we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Because we consider His blood as sacrifice as precious, we consider marriage and it's designed for sex inside of marriage as precious. We're called to be countercultural. Our views of marriage and sex, they're a way we're going to stand out. It's an easy way for people to see that we're different. And I was reading a guy named Ligon Duncan this week, and he was talking about how many of the early intellectual defenders of Christianity, they say that the thing that convinced them the most about the truth of the Christian faith was not so much the intellectual arguments put forward about Christianity. And I think that's true for us today. It's not so much the intellectual arguments we put forward about Christianity. And he says, but seeing people who had lived lives of moral dissipation who had been immoral. I, I lived a life of immorality when I was younger. By God's grace, He's changed me. So speaking people who live lives of moral dissipation, transformed morally by the power of the gospel. See, we're not moral people to earn God's favor, but because God's chosen us and changed us, His love transforms us. So Justin Martyr tells of a woman, Justin Martyr was an early church father that says, you don't tell a woman who was morally corrupt. And then she was brought to Christ and her life changed. He was an anti-Christian intellectual. But it says she stopped living in an immoral way. And Justin Martyr, he had no argument against that. You see, people see our lives are different. That we're loving our siblings. They see that we're loving strangers. That we're loving those who are mistreated. They see that we're holding marriage in honor. We don't bow to the culture. That we're living lives of purity, not sexual immorality. There's no argument against that. That's showing the power of the gospel. It says there has to be some moral realities behind the change, he said. And this was instructive and instrumental in his own growth and grace in coming to Christ. Now, if you've been sexually immoral, let me clarify. Like I said earlier, that word encompasses any kind of sexual knowing of a person. If you've been sexually immoral, it's complete forgiveness for you. 
And you can avoid judgment by trusting in the fact that Jesus was judged for your sins. I was sexually immoral. God has saved me by His grace. He's changed me. I'm not defined by that anymore. You don't have to be defined by your past. If you're currently sexually immoral, if you're having any kind of sexual interaction with somebody else who's not your spouse, if you're addicted to porn, don't take it lightly. Repent. Stop. Turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and change. Why? It says that He's going to judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. For committing adultery, stop it. God takes sexual immorality and adultery seriously. He says He'll judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And in regards to fornicators, there's several verses I want to share with you. One is in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not picking on one class of people. It's saying, if you're living a lifestyle like this, of immorality, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. If you're pursuing willingly, knowingly, actively pursuing this lifestyle, pursuing this way of living in any of those categories. So drunkards are just as bad as fornicators, as bad as thieves, as homosexuals, adulterers, as effeminate. Nobody's, nobody's worse than the others. This is a whole list of people who are pursuing a life, not a worship of God, but of worship of themselves. And he says that, don't you know that they won't inherit the kingdom? And this is not being judgmental. This is actually being loving and saying, if you're living this way, God has a better way for you. That He can forgive you and He can change you. 1 Corinthians 5, 9, He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Go ahead, one more, sorry. Not up there, excellent. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I do not at all mean the immoral people of this world. So what He's saying is, hey, I'm not talking about don't associate with immoral people in the world or with covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. So obviously you have people around you who are immoral. He's not saying that. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. Revelation 21, 8. I don't know if we have this one or not. Excellent. It says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, the part would be in the lake that burns the fire and brims so much the second death. Living a life of gratitude, it preaches a message and says, there is hope and it's not found in any of these things. And let me tell you about the hope that I have because I was a fornicator, because I was a liar, because I, I was a deceiver, a thief. God's changed me. That's why we live lives like this, to worship God and to display His, His beauty and His grandeur. And we're to hold up God's goodness like, like we point people to the view of Mount Baker. I would people come to our house and say, they say, what a nice house. Like, Great, you yeah, haven't seen anything. Come on, out, come on outside the house. Let's stand on the back porch. Look. Isn't that pretty? Isn't that beautiful? There's something more beautiful. And it's, and it's, it's what God's done. God takes this seriously. In Revelation 22, he talks about the dogs and sorcerers, the immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying will be outside. And as somebody who's previously been sexually immoral, I can testify God's grace, His forgiveness is freeing. You don't have to be ashamed and you don't have to say, oh no, I can't admit my past. No, God's changed you. He's forgiven you. He's, he's made you righteous in His sight. So now I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live a life of worship and gratitude to Him. 
He forgives and He changes. And if you're stuck in sexual sin, let me encourage you to walk in the light. Confess your sins to, to God and confess them to somebody else who's a Christian. And, and say, I need help. God's going to help set you free and forgive you and enable you to enjoy Him. Before we move on, I want to make a couple comments to address some concerns because these are touching on issues that are very sensitive to the culture around us. I want to make sure you're not tempted to judge one type of sexual immorality as worse than another. The truth is, the sexual immorality in the form of a guy and a girl knowing each other, or a guy and a guy knowing each other, or a girl and a girl knowing each other, any form of sexual immorality, God's viewing the same. He's lumping that, that word porneia. It's, it's a word that lumps it all together. and says, it's any sex outside of marriage, any knowing outside of marriage, it's, it's the same, and it's not what God intended. It's not His design. But we're tempted in different ways. Each one of us are tempted in different ways, different proclivities, different temptations. But God intends for us to enjoy Him and His good purposes for us. And, and it's not good for us to be sexually immoral. It distracts us. It keeps us from God. It keeps us from knowing Him. It keeps us from enjoying Him. But God intends something better for us. God's also not calling us to be prudes as Christians. He's calling us to enjoy what He designed in a context that will actually make it better in marriage. It will be for our good and it will tell others about the relationship of Jesus Christ to His bride, the church, and say, I love my wife. She's wonderful. And I'm celebrating my wife. The last command that we're going to look at, this, this command that can seem disjointed as you're driving through the forest of this verse, it's, it's going to seem disjointed, but it's not. In verse 5, look there, it says, Keep your life free from love of money. This is, this is yet another way. It says, keep your life free from love money. Be content with what you have. This is yet another way that gratitude to God is seen. And it's kind of the reverse way that he's giving an argument here. It's gratitude to God is seen in not loving money. Gratitude to God is seen in not loving money. It's in, in seen in keeping your life free from loving money. What he's saying is that you can't love God if you're loving money. So one of the ways that we worship God, that we show our gratitude to Him, is not loving money. The implication is instead loving God instead of loving money. If we love God, it's going to love money. It's going to keep us from loving God. It's going to keep us from practicing hospitality. It's going to keep us selfish. It's going to be, keep us saying, "I want to keep what I have to me. I don't want to show mercy to sinners. I don't want to show mercy to strangers. I don't want to go to people in prison. I don't want to have people over to my house and spend money. I don't want to do those things." He's not saying money's evil or making money is evil. No, it's. In fact, the Bible in all, all, many other places encourages hard work and that at workers is due as wages. Seeking growth in your employment and working to increase your salary, that's not wrong, but he's saying loving money and living to get the next great thing so that people will see your nice things and glorify you is going to take you far from God. It's going to rob you of your joy. You see, God's not a joy robber. He wants us to love Him and live lives of worship to Him because He wants to give us joy. Because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He doesn't want us to look for joy in lesser things and I think, and think that money satisfies. If, if, you're, if you have a lot of money, no matter how rich you become, it will never be enough if you're looking for money to be satisfied. Here's the reverse. If you don't have a lot of money here this morning and maybe you're thinking, I'm poor. I don't have a problem with this. Maybe you do. Maybe you're too aware that you're poor. Too aware of your lack of money. Think that money is the solution to your problems. If only I had a little more, it would be okay. First Timothy six six. 
Apostle Paul says, Now there's great gain in godliness with contentment. And I love just how practical he says, We brought nothing into this world. You, you were born naked. You didn't bring anything into this world. And we can't take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, to a snare, and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. The author of Hebrews is helping us love God, live a life of grateful worship to Him, saying, don't, don't love money. Let your life be free from that. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6.24, either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. In the verse, into verse 5, he gives us a sentence. It's the, it's the biggest motivating factor for not loving money and for loving God by being content. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Here's how we can be content and have our lives free from the love of money if we're more aware of the fact that I might lose it all, but I won't lose him. I might lose everything, but he'll never leave me. <laughs> my job might leave me. My, my, my money might leave me. I might, my retirement account might leave me, but he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. I can be content. We can love God because he'll never leave us or forsake us. And isn't that good news this morning? In fact, this is the motivation. This Verse 5 and 6, they, they, they form the motivation for the, all of these commands. They're in response to... The fact that we have a kingdom can't be shaken. It's a life of worship. But the motivation is that God has said He'll never leave us or forsake us. So because He'll never leave us or forsake us, He'll enable us to show hospitality, to love one another. He'll enable us to live lives that are free from money, that, that put the marriage bed in honor, that hold it as precious. Both this part of verse 5 and verse 6 gives the motivation and encouragement for worshiping God. In verse 6 it says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. How can I live this way? How can I love my brothers? How can I practice hospitality? How can I... I don't have any faith for that. How can I love strangers? How can I... How can I go to those in prison? How can I treat those who are mistreated as if I want to be treated? How can I do all those things? And here he says, So we can confidently say in all these things, The Lord is my helper. Can you imagine... Get the point. Get this point of what he's saying. The Lord is your helper. This is the creator of the universe. This is the all-knowing, all-wise, omnipotent, almighty, the one who no one can stay his hand, nothing can stop him, no one can give him counsel. He knows all, sees all, is able to do all, and yet he loves you. It says the Lord is my helper. It's coming around the corner and seeing this mountain just explode in front of us. The Lord is my helper. Oh, that's how I do all the things He's called me to do. That's how I live a life of gratitude to Him. That's how I live a life of worship. The Lord's my helper. I won't fear. I'm not going to fear my inability. I'm not going to fear people. I'm not going to fear what people think of my house and not have hospitality. I'm not going to fear strangers. I'm not going to fear not running out of money. I'm not going to fear what the world thinks of my definition of marriage. I'm not going to fear the fact that people think I'm weird because I don't have sex and I'm not married. I'm not going to fear any of those things. Why? Because the Lord's my helper. What can man do to me? The last point that we see really is that we can live lives of love for God because of God. Living in love for God is possible because of God. Not because of you, not because of me. See, God gave us this unshakable king to begin with. 
He calls us to live a life of worship. But then he says, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I'll be your helper. You don't have anything to fear. What can man do to you? Maybe man can mock you. Maybe man can hurt you, beat you up, put you in prison, take all your things away from you like the people in the book of Hebrews had done to them. Maybe you'll lose your house, your property, your possessions. He says, we can confidently say, this is the context the people he's writing to, who are in danger of all those things. So we can confidently say, the Lord says, I'll never leave you, forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Pfft, what can man do to me? What? I won't fear. If, if you're fearing your inability to, to stop sinning, to stop living a sexually immoral life, if you're feeling what the consequence will be if you come clean because you're adulterous, if you're fearing what will happen when you have strangers into your house, if you're fearing what will it take, it will mean sacrifice that I love each other here and I practice hospitality here. If you're fearing, okay, wait a minute, I can't, I'm not holding on to my things, I have to actually give control to God. If you're fearing those things, don't fear the Lord your helper. Who's bigger than God? Who's more able than God? What can man do to you now? He can kill you. Big deal. You have a kingdom that's unshakable. That's undefiled. Kept in heaven for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've given us unimaginable beauty. That you've given us something we could not have made on our own. You've You've given us a kingdom that can't be shaken by our unbelief. It can't be shaken by our sin. It can't be shaken by our failure. It can't be shaken by the world around us. It can't be shaken by finances. It can't be shaken by any of those things, what people think about us. You've given us this kingdom that can't be shaken. And Lord, you call us to live lives worshiping you, but Lord, you don't leave us there. You say, in fact, that you'll never leave us in the midst of all these things and what you call us to, but you'll enable us to do what you call us to do. So Father, I pray this morning that if you've brought conviction to, to us here, that you would also bring your good grace and encouragement. Father, I pray for the gift of conviction. Conviction is a gift from you. And God, I do pray that we would not respond out of guilt, Lord, but I pray that we would respond out of love for you and we would step out in faith, Father, I pray, and do difficult things, that we would live radical lives in this church. I pray that we would live radical lives as disciples, that, we would, that you would transform my heart and all of our hearts, Lord, so that we would, we would want to worship you and step out in faith knowing that you will be our helper. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. So, God, I pray that you would help us all repent. Help me repent. Help us all repent for not showing hospitality to strangers, Lord, for not doing some of these things, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to trust in you and know that you will help us. You'll be with us. You'll never forsake us. You'll give us your grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.